You guys, open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, this morning. What we've been doing over the past several months is we've been going through a series in the book of Galatians, and we got to about chapter 5, and we slowed down considerably, and we slowed down right around the area on chapter 5, verse 22, 23, uh, what's typically called the fruit of the Spirit. The reason why we did that is uh, because we realized that the subject matter of the fruit of the Spirit is really important. Paul identifies it as the fruit of the Spirit, meaning it comes from God. So there's two reasons why we really wanted to slow down and take a look at basically each one of these nine fruit of the Spirit is the first reason is that because like I already mentioned, these are actually characteristic traits of God because really at the heart of what we're trying to do here on Sunday mornings and as at the heart of what we want to do here as a church, meaning in our community groups that meet throughout the week and as we disperse and as we go out beyond the doors of this church, really what's at the heartbeat, the DNA of who we are, we want to know God. And so part of knowing God is really trying to nail down and try to understand who he is by way of how he reveals himself through various characteristic traits as he does here. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that Paul's going to describe that these fruit of the Spirit are actually evidences of a supernaturally changed heart. So if you're a Christian, then these evidences will be in your life. That's why Paul describes them as fruit of the Spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that you live these things out perfectly. It doesn't mean that you're always going to be loving. It doesn't mean that you're always going to be full of peace. It doesn't mean that you're going to be all of these things all the time. But even in the moments where these things are absent, where you don't see them, when you don't feel that they're there, you really want them. So the moments when you're not loving, you realize the absence of love, and you're like, ah, I wish I was loving. I wish I acted differently in that situation. I wish I would have shown more patience to that person rather than yelling at them or whatever. But the reality is, is that that's what the fruit of the Spirit are. So they're characteristics of God, but they're also characteristics that become of us as being mirrored from God. So that's why we're taking the time looking at these things. The one that we're going to be taking a look at here today is the one that is the last one that's identified as self-control. This is the last one that we'll be taking a look at. Next week, we kind of will continue to finish up the rest of Galatians. And when we're done with the book of Galatians, uh, we will basically be in summer. I have some good stuff that we're going to be looking at next. I'll probably reveal that to you guys next week. But until then, uh, you can try to guess. But until then, uh, you can just keep guessing. But uh, what we'll be doing today is we will really try to understand what self-control is why it's important. So the three things that we'll try to be understanding and asking this morning is one, really, what is self-control? That's the most obvious one. Two, um, what motivates self-control? Like, how do we actually become motivated to be people that are full of self-control, finally? How do we actually move from the uh, ethereal, what motivates, to actually doing it? How do we actually become people that really, truly are controlling ourselves? So, with that, what I want to do right now is I want to really jump into asking the question, what is self-control? It's an important one because in the ancient Greek philosophies, the philosophers identified self-control as being one of the cheapest of all of the virtues in which a person can strive for or desire. So take a look at the next slide. I'll give you a couple examples of these. Like Plato, he described it as uh, being inwardly strong. In other words, it's this inner strength that somebody has that can do things, accomplish certain things. They set their mind to something and they do it. Socrates described it as a, a cardinal virtue. In other words, this is the overriding virtue above all other virtues. In other words, it's the idea that even if you had some of the other virtues that are in your life, if you don't have self-control, you really don't have any of them. Because if you don't have self-control, you don't have the capacity to actually live out the other cardinal or the other virtues that are part of uh, uh, you know, that philosophical mindset of the world. Now, Paul the Apostle is going to describe it this way. And the word that he uses here uh, in Kratia is sort of the idea that carries the concept of self, meaning who we are, but also Kratia or Kratia, the idea of um, government or strength or power or the idea of exercising control over something. So the concept that Paul is really trying to convey and communicate to his readers is that what self-control is, is it's the ability to, even though you have desires, you control certain desires because you realize that some of those certain desires that you have might be good, but they're not ultimately, they're not the ultimate good in your life. So in other words, you're actually making choices to forego or to control certain desires for the sake of other desires to make, sure, to make certain that you don't get bound by or strung up into anything 
else. And the reason why, hopefully it will become a little bit clear to us, why this is an important element um, and why this is even identified as being one of the fruit of the Spirit. I'll give you a couple examples. We, we live in a day and age that in a lot of ways we value self-control to some degree. I mean, there are those people that really get into it, especially people that are naturally prone towards a very disciplined life. And the reality is, is you don't have to be even a Christian to be incredibly self-disciplined, all right? I mean, you can watch infomercials. I mean, I remember, you know that guy, Anthony Robbins? Like, like I, don't, I don't even know if that guy's a Christian, to be honest with you, but you know who I'm talking about, Tony Robbins? Or like, both of you know it. You like, stay up late at night, you watch it. Anyways, this guy's just like, he's got this chiseled jaw, and he's just like... Yeah, I, probably, I can strike, guy strikes me as this guy that can do like, like 600 sit-ups and be like, I can do it. I can just do it. He's got like, he's a type of guy that's incredibly self-controlled. But the reality is, is that you can actually have a lot of control of yourself and of your life and of certain elements of your life, but not in any way have anything to do with the Spirit of God. It doesn't have anything to do with Christianity. In fact, if anything, it's actually motivated by self so you control certain things that are inconsistent with maybe your job or your career or the image that you want to uh, expose to the rest of the world or the way in which you want other people to think about you. And so you are motivated in this idea, this way to be able to live in such a way to make certain that you keep your reputation looking chiseled, to make sure that you keep your image looking very good so you are very disciplined in certain areas of your life. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say that type of self-control gets hijacked by religious people. Religious people love taking this concept of self-control. A lot of the Christian church tends to do this. Maybe you've been in a church like this where they love to take elements of self-control. This is the big one. This is the one when the pastor up front or when somebody in your Bible study or a leader or a brand new person becomes a Christian, a brand new Christian, and they're very passionate. They're like, it's all about self-control. What does that mean? Well, self-control is, you know, you, you, you can't cuss. <laughs> you can't drink. Or you can't, you know, smoke cigarettes or whatever the case is. That you've got to control those urges to do those things because if you do those things and you don't look Christian. And the reality is, is those things have absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. I know you've been told otherwise, but you've been lied to. Probably by well-intentioned people that may care about you, but in other words, what they're doing is they're trying to hijack this concept of self-control, and they're basically telling you, here's what you need to do. Here's what a self-controlled life looks like. Here's how hard you got to work to get to it, and if you don't do it, that's okay. We've got spies watching you, monitoring your Facebook, getting ready to do whatever we can to excommunicate you, to shun you, to do whatever we got to do, to shame you, to guilt you, whatever we can do to get you to act right. It's all about behavior modification. That's what religion is. That's what Christian religion is. I'm not saying Christianity, but Christian religion. People who even take Christianity, hijack it with a religious mentality. It says it's about modifying your behavior. That the most important thing you can do, you should do, you ought to do, is you got to modify your behavior. you got to look good. you got to look the part, look the role. And it's about really modifying how you act, changing what you do, but never really truly getting deep enough to change your actual heart, change the true being of who you are. So in other words, some of you look at your life, and we all have these habits in our lives that all of us wish were different. All of us. I mean, if we were to go through, you know, the next hour and ask every one of you, what is one thing that you could change, that you wish you could change, habits that you have, that you wish you can break, ways in which you acted throughout, even just this day, and we haven't even gotten to noon yet, some of you are like, ah, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I didn't yell at my wife, for Pete's sakes, it's Mother's Day, I already chewed her out. That's, that's a party fail. You just don't do that, all right? You're already feeling guilty over that, so you're like, I wish I can start over again. So we can all look at our lives and say there are certain things that we wish we can do differently. We wish we can have more control over ourselves, the way that we can act and do things. But for some of us, we can be like, look, what I really want to do is I want to change how much I eat. I don't want to eat as much. I want to be more controlled in those areas. I want to be able to be more controlled in my weight, or I want to be more controlled in my discipline of how I work out or how I do my job or whatever types of things we can look at. We say, I don't want to drink as much. I don't want to smoke as much. I don't want to do all these other things as much. And so we can look at certain elements in our lives and say, I just, I just need more self-discipline to be better at what I do in life. When in reality, what you're really doing is you're really only dealing with the fruit 
but not the root. You've got to go deeper. And what the Bible's going to tell us, and what the gospel actually does, is it's not just simply interested in behavioral modification. That's what religion cares about. But the gospel, yes, it cares about how you act, but not as a matter of primary importance. You've got to get this. Because you've been told, many of us have been told, that what God really wants is you to act right, to act good, to be good. God's not so much interested in trying to make you a better person as much as he, is, as he wants to give you a new heart. This is what it's about. The gospel actually comes to us and doesn't point fingers at us and say, be better, act better, stop drinking so much, stop smoking, stop swearing. The gospel comes to us and gives us a new heart, true desires, deep desires, whereby we live according to those new desires. Let me give you an example. If I were to ask you, and I do this a lot with people when I counsel them, oftentimes I'll ask them, what are the deepest desires in your heart, the true deep desires in your heart that drive everything you do, that motivate your life, that cause you to do the things that you want to do? If the answer is like, I, just, I want to I party, I want to sin, I want to have sex, and I want to do it a lot. And if that's the deepest desires in your heart, you're not a Christian. I mean, you, you, you may be in a Christian context, you may have Christian friends, you may grow up in a group of people that act Christian, but you're really not a Christian. But if you would say, my deepest desire is I, I really want to love God, I want to love God's people, I want to love what God loves, but then you go on in the, to finish the sentence by saying, but I don't do it all the time, I sin a lot, I have sex periodically, I do bad things, but if your deepest desires are for God, then you're a Christian who's just like the rest of us. You're trying to figure the walk out. It's not just simply desires. It's the deepest desires and how you live out of those deepest desires. So it's not just simply changing your behavior. It's having a new heart. That's what the gospel does. The gospel comes to us and actually gives us a new heart whereby we act according to a new desires, new purposes that God gives to us, and that's what we live out of. So what ends up happening, so it's not just simply saying, I got to have more self-control to stop eating so much. Maybe what you need to do is you got to go back further and ask, why do you eat so much? Why? And what you might discover is the root of the fruit, which ends up eating a lot, is that food happens to be your functional God. It's what you go to when you're sad. You open the refrigerator and there's this light, this bright light. It's like the Shekinah glory of God. And it speaks to you and beckons you and calls you to come. And you come. It's like there's the light. There's the glow. It's calling me. It's bringing me in. And you worship. And you just enjoy and you indulge in yourself. When in reality, that's what you run to when you need comfort. When God's saying, no, no, that's an idol you're running to. That doesn't help you. That doesn't, that doesn't change you. It doesn't give you life. It doesn't give you joy. In fact, if anything, it, keeps, it will destroy you. If that's the God that you turn to all the time, that will end up becoming a, a false God, which will end up bringing you into some form of bondage. you got to break that. And you break that not by simply exercising self-control. Trust me, you can. I mean, I've watched The Biggest Loser. There are some people that can actually break that cycle and change that. But at the end of the day, you know what actually changes you? Is getting to the bottom of having a new heart put inside you. Dealing with the idols that we run to, changing the things that we do fundamentally on the basic of, basis of who we are, seeing God for who he is, and then as a result of being changed, as a result of having a new heart, what will end up happening is then you will live a self-controlled life because of a new heart. Because of a new heart. See, oftentimes our culture gets it backwards. We say... I need to control myself so that I can be a new person. God says, no, no, no. You need a new heart, and therefore you will live according to a greater level of self-control. It begins with needing God's grace, needing God's mercy to change you, to live out from those new desires, those deepest desires that are for life, that are for God, that are for righteousness, as opposed to lesser desires that are for sin, that are for evil, that are for false gods that lead to bondage. 
So the second thing that I really want to try to understand is this. So we saw kind of what is self-control. The second thing is I want to try to understand what motivates self-control. What motivates self-control? I want you guys to turn real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There's basically going to be three things I'm going to throw out to you guys, suggest to you that I think that motivates self-control in the heart of a believer. The first one is this. The first one is a desire to not sin. So Paul's going to describe sin as being equivalent to being disqualified. Here's what he says in verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. There's a word in kratia, self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to myself, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul's saying, look, I'm in a race, and I'm like an athlete that's in a race, and what I want to be careful about is what Paul's saying is that, is that when I run this race, I want to be very careful to be aware of things that can disqualify me. Because as I preach to others, as I tell others about this great journey that I'm on, tell them about God, tell them about Christ, tell them, preach the gospel to them. Paul says, I'm concerned about sin because sin will trip me up, sin will destroy me, sin will hurt me, sin will uh, shrink my world, and as my world shrinks and as I trip and as I get injured in, in, the, in the race, I become disqualified and I will not be able to run the race with, with as much endurance and strength as I would like, as I would hope. So Paul's going to say, sin is a motivating factor by which we exercise self-control. So there are going to be those who would say, I don't want to do certain things because I don't want to jeopardize the race. Now, let me say this. Out of the three things that we'll be taking a look at, sin as being a motivating factor, if I can say this, is the least important one. Let me say that again. Sin will be the least important one. Now, let me say this. I say this because some Christians will identify sin as being the most important element to watch out for in running the race. Now, let me put it this way. Sin is very important to identify, to watch out for. The reason why sin is important to identify and watch out for is because if you're not careful and you do sin, you do stumble in sin, then you will be disqualified. But the purpose of being concerned about sin is the same reason why a runner would be concerned about potholes. Or be concerned about wearing the right type of shoe. Or be concerned about wearing the right clothing. Or be, be concerned about making sure that they stretch before they run. Or make sure that they bring you know, a fair amount of carbohydrates on a run with them. Something which they can eat while they're running to make certain that once they get tired, they don't, they don't want to fall. They don't want to stop. And really the driving force is not so much avoiding sin as an end in and of itself. But the ultimate end is they don't want to get out of the race. The reason why this is an important element to point out is because sin is bad. It is bad. Paul's going to describe it. In fact, just to prove my point in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, so Paul immediately jumps on after verse 27. He goes into chapter 10. Again, when the Bible is originally written, there were no chapter distinctions or verse distinctions there. So this actually just continues to read. So in our American Bibles, obviously, for the next 14 verses, Paul's going to basically give a buffet line of all sorts of sins to be aware of. He's actually going to use Old Testament examples to say, just like the Israelites weren't careful of these things, and they disqualified themselves, or they fell, or they incurred judgment upon themselves, Paul's going to say, you too need to be careful of these things. So, for example, Paul's going to say, don't desire evil in verse 6. He's going to say in verse 7, don't be idolaters. Verse 8, he's going to say, don't indulge yourself in sexual immorality. Verse 9, he's going to say, don't test God. Verse 10, he's going to say, don't grumble. So these are all vices or sins that Paul says you really got to be aware of. You got to be careful of. But again, what I want to drive home is this. Even though sin is deadly, it's destructive, the reason why sin is so bad needs to be understood. Let me give you an example of what St. Augustine said. He said, sin is not necessarily loving bad things, but loving good things inordinately. Someone described it as this. It's disordered love. That's what sin is. Sin is when we, we love things and we put all of our energy into something that's, that's really not worthy of as much affection and love that we give it to. So really what God does is he reorders our affections. 
when an athlete is divided in his desires, is he going to be a good athlete? No. I mean, if you talk to any athlete who is really wanting to go far in what he's doing, that athlete knows exactly what he wants to do. I mean, it doesn't take long. I mean, you can sit down and have coffee with him. A good friend of mine, a guy actually went to Cal Poly, graduated, um, a guy named Chase Panny. He's actually training right now to be in the Olympics as a wrestler. Very good chances he's going to get there. I just ran into him about a month ago downtown. I was talking to him. I'm like, how's training been going? He's like, it's, it's amazing. He goes, I, I work out all the time. I'm constantly going, constantly just sparring with people, constantly trying to get better. I'm like, why? Because he's like, at the end of the day, I, I want to be in the Olympics. I want to be, I, I don't just want to enter, I want to win. I want to represent my country and I want to win. But Chase has got something even higher motivating him. I mean, he's a believer, he loves Jesus. And he actually looks at the opportunity of being on the world stage as an opportunity to preach Jesus, to show the love of Christ. But the reality is, is that he knows exactly what he wants to do. And you're like, Chase, what do you want to do? He's not, he's not like, you know, I really just want to eat in and out all day long. That's what I want to do. He's not like, I just want to sleep. I, I, I want to be a sluggard. That's what I want to do. Sluggard, my desire. Number one desire, being a sluggard. Now, now for him, he's like, my number one desire is to be in the Olympics to win, to do good. So therefore, he, he modifies, he changes his life to fall in some sort of consistent pattern to be able to be there. He's not divided in his affections. Does that make sense? But that's what sin does. Sin divides us in our affections. Where we think we want God, but in reality, we want all these other things. That's what, what I said earlier. We're going back to what are your deepest desires? You really want to know who you are? You want to know if you're truly a Christian? What are your deepest, deepest desires in your heart? Are you living out from those deepest desires? That's the issue. What sin does, sin comes in and says, no, you want this. No, this is better than God. Or this pursuit is far better, brings far more satisfaction than God does. That's what sin does. It's all these disorganized affections that we have in our hearts that we pursue. Now, again, let me, let me stress this. Sin is not the number one reason that motivates us to run with endurance. Here's why. Because it would be like a runner saying the number one desire he has every time he ever runs is to just avoid, to avoid tripping. Now, is tripping an issue for a runner? Yeah, of course it is, I'm sure. They're concerned about it. I run, I like to run, I like to run trails, and yeah, it's a little bit of a concern for mine, especially when I'm running downhill, and there's a lot of gravel. It's a concern, and there's times I've run, and my, my, my ankle just barely gives out. I'm like, oh, I gotta be careful, all right? I'm the only one up here, and like a couple miles in, there's nobody around, and like, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm, you know, I don't wanna fall. I don't wanna break my ankle. And the reality is, yeah, it's a concern, but I don't live my entire life with this one constant driving, motivating factor that says, I just don't want to spray my ankle. I don't want to trip. It's, a, it's an important thing. It's not the number one driving, motivating factor. Sin is destructive. Sin is bad. And we don't want to sin. But at the end of the day, the reason why we don't want to sin is because we don't want to get out of the race, which means Whatever the prize is in the race is even greater than sin. It's greater than. Let me try to put this into some very practical terms. There are Christians that tend to take sin and say it's the number one thing that you've got to spend all your energy trying to fight and resist. And I'm going to say it's absolutely important for you to be aware of sin and watch out for it. But at the end of the day, if that's the only thing that you spend all of your time trying to fight and resist and avoid, then you will become a person who's full of fear, not love. The gospel actually transforms us to be people that are full of love, not fear. And when you're full of love, there's certain things that love naturally causes you to not want to do. I love my wife. I've been married to her 20 years. I don't want to have an affair. Not because I'm so concerned about the consequences. I'm sure they're bad. I lose my job. But I'm more concerned about my, the heart of my wife. I love my wife. I love her heart. I'd hate to break it. But I'm compelled by love. That's my prize. It's an amazing prize. So, what sin does is it shrinks your world. It destroys you. Let me give an example. If you're a parent, you're raising your kids, 
if all you do is you constantly tell your kids to avoid sin, but don't tell them why they should avoid sin, then all you're really doing is you're training them to modify their behavior around you so that they don't sin around you. Around you. They'll still sin, but not around you. You've got to give them a bigger reason why to avoid it. You do. Otherwise, you know what you do? You're training them to be a really skilled Pharisee. That's all you're doing. You're not changing them. You're not giving them a greater glory to live for that is bigger and better and greater than sin. You're just training them to learn how to be very good at modifying their behavior around you without ever really truly changing them and showing them the beauty and the greatness of Jesus. The second thing that we notice that kind of motivates self-control is a desire for superior glory. Now, Paul's going to identify this. He's going to say, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable crown. So Paul's going to say, look, every athlete, he's got a great glory that he's got set apart in his mind to run this race, to train as an athlete, to make radical sacrifices in order to get that. And that's the way it is with everything. I mean, if you're a brand new uh, person in a relationship and you just fall in love with this person, or if you just got married, or you just had a baby, or you just got a brand new job, there's this really strong desire for you to uh, live in a very self-disciplined manner, or if you're going to want to join into a race or you know I know last week was wildflower and if you trained for that and worked hard for that your desire was not like you know what I want to join the race and drop out after five minutes just chugging that's what I want to do I want to be a loser like nobody does that they're like I'm going to train hard because I really want to finish or at least come close to finishing or at least say that I did as best as I could so you train really hard you work really hard you make radical sacrifices for that because in your mind there's a sense of glory there's something that shines something that sparkles something that you really want that's beautiful so you're willing to train for that you're willing to make sacrifices for that you're willing to do what you got to do to get to that particular level Jesus would put it this way in Matthew chapter 13 verse 44 he talks about this parable it's a very short parable but here's what he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered up but when uh, in his joy, he goes and he sells everything that he has for this field, and he buys this field. So here's what happens. Jesus tells his story. He says, here's a guy who had a lot of possessions, a lot of stuff, a lot of good things, a lot of good things. He could have enjoyed it. He could have indulged himself in it. Uh, he could have made that his number one goal in life, to just simply enjoy it, to build houses for it, to uh, tear down barns, build bigger barns for the joy or to, for, the, for the goods that he had already currently had. But what had happened was this guy actually was stumbling uh, through a field, stumbled across some sort of a treasure in that field. So he realizes, um, wow, this is a big treasure, but this is not my field. So what I want to do is I want to purchase the entire property. That's the way you do it back then. And then he would go out. But in order to get that whole field, he would have to get rid of everything that he had. In other words, make radical, self-sacrificial steps in order to get the money to purchase that field. But it tells us, Jesus says, for the joy that was in him. Like he had discovered a glorious treasure in this field that he was willing very joyfully to get rid of it. I remember hearing a story of a guy, he was a missionary. I think it was a guy named David Livingston, if I can remember correctly. Someone asked him one time, you know, what's it like? He was a missionary, I think, in India. And he was like, you know, what was it like to be able to just give everything away, to go be this incredible missionary, to live this radical life of sacrifice for the gospel, to give away all the stuff to go do that? If I can remember correctly, his response was, I, I've, I've not made a sacrifice for that. And his whole point was basically to try to identify this reality that I, I was full of joy. I, what I received in the mission field, what I received from God, was so full of joy, walking away from everything I had was not a sacrifice. That was easy. That was easy. And that's the type of idea, the motivating thing. When you realize something of great significance and glory and beauty, and it ravishes you, it changes you, it raises the affections of your heart to the point where you're willing to just make whatever change is necessary in order to obtain that, to be there with that, sacrifice actually comes easy. Self-discipline becomes something that it's not as difficult. So really, again, the issue is, is trading in desires for lesser things for desires for new things that are eternal. That's what God's saying. You know, that's what salvation is. Salvation is God opening our eyes to a place where we were once blind, we didn't see him, we didn't know him, 
We didn't know the beauty of God. We didn't understand the glory of salvation. But God opened our eyes. We saw the beauty of Jesus. And our hearts were radically changed to the point where we would say, I'm willing to give up anything, any sinful activity, any habit that keeps me from God. I want to get rid of it all so that I can be with my God. Because he's beautiful. Let me just add this one other thing to you parents. That should be the reality of what gets conveyed to our kids. If all our kids hear from us about Christianity is it's a bunch of rules to follow, there's a bunch of moralistic behavior you gotta conform to, you gotta go to church, you gotta act this way, you gotta dress a certain way, you gotta listen to a certain type of music, you gotta do whatever the type of Christian culture does. You're, all you're doing is you're giving them Christian culture, you're not showing them the beauty of Jesus. You're not giving them something bigger than their life by which they would be willing to let go of whatever they have to lay a hold of that which is all beautiful, all glorious. That's what God did to you. That's how God saved us. Is he opened our eyes to his absolute beauty and we are willing to let go of anything that was of lesser value to lay a hold of him. That's what Paul's saying. So the second motivating factor is really a desire for a superior glory. Now, the third thing is this, is a desire to enjoy this glory with others. Now, glory is important. This beauty, it's important. But the nature of God's glory is this. The nature of God's beauty is this. It always invites others into it. Let me give you an example. Here's the, I, I get this third thing from this, this third motivating factor from this. is uh, Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul's going to say this. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. He says, so that I might share with them in the blessings. Okay, what Paul has just finished talking about is he was talking about all the steps of sacrifice that he's made in his life. I'll give you a couple examples. Just before this, maybe around verse 19, he says, even though I'm free, he says, I make myself to be a servant to all so that I might win some. So Paul's like, look, I'm free in Christ, but the reality, here's the way that I live. I live as a servant. I serve everybody around me. It doesn't matter who they are, what color skin they have what religion they are, it doesn't matter. I serve anybody. And the reason why Paul would say that is because, for one, Jesus served me, and I'm willing to do anything for Jesus. Paul's going to go on to say, not only that, to Jews, I act like a Jew, I become like a Jew. To those that are under the law, I become like those that are under the law. To those that are outside the law, I'm willing to make self-sacrifices so that I might win those that are outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. He says, I become all things to all people that, that I might win some. So Paul's basically trying to say, that he makes these radical changes in his life because at the end of the day, what Paul really wants is he wants for others to share in the glory that he discovered. Let me give you an example. The nature of discovering something really good is evangelism. All right, let me give you an example of this. When you get a new album, you hear a new song, watch a new video, you're like, this is so good, I'm going to post it on my Facebook wall. The reason why you do that is because you're like, this is so good, I want everybody to see it, all right? You read a book, and you're like, this is, this is definitely going to be the next book we're going to read in our book club, because it's such a good book. Or you see a movie, and you put the trailer, you know, you tweet it, you're just like, I got everybody, I got to make sure everybody sees the trailer of this video, because it was such a good movie, I want to make sure that everybody sees it, I want to make sure everybody hears the music that I like, I want to make sure that everybody sees the same things that I've seen. I'll give you another example. You go to the beach. Maybe you're there by yourself at nighttime or just around the time of dusk and you see the sun setting. It's absolutely beautiful and you're like, this is so amazing. You take a picture of it with your cell phone and then you what? You Instagram it, post it on your Facebook. Why? Because it's so beautiful that it's not enough for you to just see glory. You want others to be brought into the glory with you. You know what you're doing? You're an evangelist. That's what you're doing. Or a mom, all right? Or a mom's here. You have a baby. The first thing you do when you have a baby is you call all your friends, you tell all your friends, you do whatever you can, you publicize it. That's evangelism. Because it's not just enough for you to enjoy the moment in and of yourselves, this incredibly beautiful, perhaps slash painful moment. You also want others to share it with you. That's what glory does. And this is what Paul's saying. He says, I've been so moved by the glory of God that I want to live my, my life in such a way so that my life, all that I am, all that I do embodies the beauty 
of the gospel. Because Paul's going to say, I want everybody to know the glory of this God. What Paul is not saying, and this is where sometimes, again, evangelical comes in, that sort of distorts us, hijacks us, reduces it. Paul is not saying, I just want everybody to know a few verses about Jesus. Paul's not saying, I just want everybody to kind of hear a story about Jesus. Paul's not saying, I just want to tell everybody about Jesus. That's not what Paul's saying. Now, it's not less than that. Paul realizes the vehicle by which people will come to know about Jesus is through communication. But Paul's not just limiting to just saying, I want to tell everybody about Jesus. Because let me put it this way. If Paul's number one desire was just to just tell everybody about Jesus, then here's how Paul can bring his life into conformity. Here's how self-discipline would take place in Paul's life. What Paul would do as the number one chief arrangement of his life was to become the best orator that he can be. Because his number one goal is to just tell people about Jesus. But that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is I want every aspect of my life, whatever I do, however I act, whatever I eat, whatever I drink, however I treat people, I want every single comprehensive part of my life to reflect the gospel. It's only an understanding of it that way that causes one to realize that's a motivating factor to live self-controlled in every facet of your life, not just certain areas. Because we've all met people, we've all seen people. It's possible to be someone who's very good, very gifted at telling others about Jesus, but their life is not lined up with the gospel. And when they're found out, what happens? People just think it's a joke. We, we call that hypocritical, because it is hypocritical. It's acting. Look, at the end of the day, the final apologetic of our life, meaning that which communicates the truth, is not our mouths only. It's our whole life. And because Paul's saying, I want my entire life to embody the beauty, the glory of Jesus and what he brought me into. I want every aspect of my life to count. I don't want to waste any aspect of it. This is why you read in Paul's letters, he's going to say things like this, speaking to people who maybe own a business. Look, if you own a business and you want to embody the gospel, you got to treat your employees right. you got to give them fair wages. you got to honor them. If you're married, the purpose of marriage is to embody the gospel. Husbands, love your wives. How has Christ loved the church? It's Paul's way of saying the gospel. It counts. If you're a kid, if you're a child, you got a mom or dad, Paul's going to say, you know, kids, honor, respect your moms and dads. Why? Because there is an honor in which Christ even honored his father. So Paul's going to say the gospel is comprehensive in every part, every facet of our life. If we understand what the gospel is, it will change every facet of everything that we do therefore like an athlete Paul's going to say I literally try to keep my body in subjection because I don't want one area of my life to be advancing while another area suffers because Paul's saying my whole goal is that my entire life my entire body my entire words everything I think say speak do act drink eat lines up with this glorious good news that God brought me into so, we can see these motivating factors, and we can look at them and be like, okay, those, those make sense, theoretically, but, but how do we move from actually hearing about these things and agreeing to these things and being like, okay, that's good, to actually doing it? How do our hearts change, become people that need to be people that live under this realm of self-control? Again, Paul's going to give this analogy of an athlete. And he's going to liken the Christian life to like an athletic race. You're running. You've got to discipline yourself. There's certain elements that you've got to say no to. All athletes know this. So if you're an athlete and you're trying to train for a marathon or a half marathon, you know that training for a half marathon and eating Costco's chocolate cake, a little bit contradictory, all right? It just doesn't work too good. Or like just before the race, you're like, I do it all the time. You know, like I sneak it in at night. I go to that all glorious Shekinah glory in the middle of the night. And you know what I'm saying? But you realize it's kind of contradictory. It just doesn't work together. It's not consistent with your goal of trying to win that race. So the point that 
Paul's going to say is that we're, we're running this race and we're motivated by these high motivating factors, but, but how do we do this in such a way? Well, Paul's going to go on to say, or at least the writer in Hebrews, a lot of speculation who wrote it, but uh, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us there is a way to run this race with endurance. And I want to read this to you and wrap it up right here. Here's what he's going to identify. The last thing we'll take a look at is this. In uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, Let us lay aside every weight of sin and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance this race that's set before us. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, he is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. So the point that the writer of Hebrews is going to identify, he's going to basically agree with Paul in this concept of running the race as being like a Christian, that it does involve discipline, it does involve self-sacrifice, it does involve being motivated to say no to certain things and say yes to certain things and make sure that I'm living out of my deepest desires so that I can win this prize and keep going forth. But here's what he's going to say. The way that we do this, the key to doing this, this is crucial because this is where religious people love to come in and say, so what you need to do is just try harder. If you're not praying enough, pray more. If you're, if you're not praying more, what you need to do is you need to set your alarm clock even earlier, wake up in the morning because you just need to do it. You need to read your Bible more. You need to be more active. You've got to help more in your church. So what it does is it takes this concept of this all-glorious gospel. It says, here's what God did for you. Here's how you should be acting for God. Really all it is is it's manipulation. It's trying to guilt you into doing something. And it never truly changes you. You're not really motivated into doing it, to run faster, run harder, because guilt is a horrible motivator. People don't win races based upon the motivation of guilt or shame. People win races based upon a motivation of glory. So here's the deal. He says, the way we do this is we look to Jesus. Here's what he's going to say about Jesus. That he was the founder and the perfecter of the faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he had some sort of a joy, some sort of goal in his mind that he was trying to go for. He endured the cross. Now, the writer of Hebrews basically compresses everything that Jesus endured for several hours on the cross into just that little phrase. So don't just read endure the cross as being just some, something simple that Jesus had to face. It's just, it's just hours and hours long ordeal of excruciating pain that Jesus went through. And if you're an athlete, if you ever run a race, you know what it's like to push through, to push your body, to force yourself to go way beyond something that's normal. There's times where your heart feels like it's about to just burst because you're pushing yourself to such extreme limits. He's saying Jesus went to such excruciating limits there on the cross. To the point of death, he died. But he rose again, and now he's seated with God in glory. And so the question that oftentimes gets asked is, is what was the joy that was set before Jesus that allowed him to pursue and keep going on to endure excruciating pain? And this is the issue. Um, some would look at this and say, well, it's the glory of God. I don't think it's less than that, but here's the deal. Jesus always had the glory of God. He didn't need the glory of God. He was in heaven. He left heaven. He left heaven's glory for a purpose and even while he was on the earth Jesus did always everything to please the father Jesus wasn't motivated to avoid sin he had no sin he wasn't tempted think he was tempted I mean he was definitely tempted in all parts of the way we are but not to the point where he was going to do it why because he had a greater purpose that was driving him that allowed him to say no to sin to walk away from it to reject it so what was the joy that was set before him. I think the Bible is going to tell us that the joy that was set before him was because the nature of glory, Jesus had it, is to share. The joy that was set before Jesus was to come into this world in order to suffer excruciating pain to bring others into the joy of his glory. That's what Jesus prayed. In that place that's called the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays. He says, Father, make them one as you and I are one. You know what Jesus is praying? He's saying, take these unlovely people that have sinned, that have broken relationship with us, that have sought to be autonomous their whole life, 
and have literally disqualified themselves from being true, constant, consistent image bearers of God. Take those, redeem them, and bring them into the glory that we've all experienced. So here's what happens. Jesus ran the race. In fact, I can put it this way and summarize it with this. Out of everybody who has ever run the race of faith, ever, Jesus was the only one who literally would have run the race perfectly. He never sinned. He never failed. He always did everything to please the Father in every way, shape, and form. Yet here's the reality. Jesus, once he came to the end, was treated as if he was disqualified. Jesus received a crown, but the crown he received was a crown of thorns. Thorns always implied curse. And the reason why Jesus did that is so that you and I, who were truly disqualified because of sin, we, we didn't run the race well. We didn't honor God with all of our hearts. We were disqualified because of our sin, because of our sinful desires, because of the multiplicity of our passions for everything else in this world other than God. We were disqualified because we took our passions and our love and our energy that was made and created by God to give back to God, and we worshiped and loved other things than God. We were the ones disqualified. We were the ones that earned the curse, and yet Jesus was treated as if he was disqualified, bearing the crown of thorns, so that we who were truly disqualified can receive a crown of life. This is how much God loves you. This is how great our God is. And when you understand what God did for you on your behalf, that does something in your heart to realize you don't have to sit on the sidelines wallowing in your sin because there's one who's come to deal with the sin, to pick you up, to keep you going, to give you a greater, greater glory, to bring you into something way beyond, to bring you into a beauty that's bigger, better, greater than anything you can ever even imagine. It's because he loves you. When you understand this greater glory of God, and when you understand this reality of wanting to bring other people into this great joy, you become controlled by yourself. You control yourself. Really? It's the spirit that controls you. But he controls you by giving you new desires and you live out from those new desires. That's how this works. Self-control is something that can be manipulated, manufactured by religious people and very deeply disciplined and devoted people. But it's all surfacy. True change comes when you understand what God did for you the race that Jesus ran on your behalf and the crown that he already purchased with his blood to gift to gift to you when you see that that changes the way that you live we're going to worship we're going to respond by singing we're going to respond by confessing sin and honestly some of you here today might feel overwhelmed by areas of sin in your life all I would say to you is, is, is look to Jesus look what the author said he says lay aside every sin every weight everything that just weighs you down bogs you down if you're going on a race if you're training for a race the goal is to dress up in clothing that's as lightweight as it can be not a suit and tie not throw a backpack of rocks on your back, but the goal is to loosen yourself from things that will destroy you, encumber you, and ruin you, and take away freedom. Jesus comes to give you freedom, to give you life, and he did that by running a race himself, by winning the race himself, but by winning the race, by being treated as if he was disqualified because of sin, even though he never sinned. He did that to exchange the crown of thorns that you deserve, that I deserve for this crown of life that only he alone deserved. That's the beauty of the gospel. I urge you, trust in him, look to him, see the beauty of God and let that change your heart, transform your motivation, give you something bigger to live for than just simply the things in this world. I'm gonna pray.
we're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is your church. Uh, I encourage you, give joyfully. Give to God. Join with the mission of this church. Give what you have before you and God, whatever it is. It's a way for you to just say, I'm on mission, to give as God would give to you. Give with a cheerful heart. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I encourage you, receive. Don't give anything. Just receive. Receive the gift of grace and salvation of love that God gives back to you. We're going to worship. We'll sing. Partake of communion. As you partake of communion, if you're new here, uh, just take a little piece of cracker and dip it. And as you do that, remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. Remember he did that because he loves you. He bore the cross for us to give us life. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you ran a race and you ran it well. And that you accomplished. You won. You won us. God, we were disqualified. Our sin disqualified us. And yet, God, we thank you that even in the midst of that, there's grace enough to wash us and cleanse us and give us a picture of who you are. So, God, I pray as we worship you, as we sing to you, that in this room, throughout this room, there'll be people confessing sin to you, laying it down at your feet, and then even more so than that, clinging to that which is greater than, bigger than anything in this world, in this life, that they would get a vision of your beauty and of your glory and cling to that, hold to that, love that. And God, that we would realize that we're called to live for something way bigger than ourselves, to bring other people into this joy, into this glory that you've brought us into, that the circle would just keep getting bigger. We'll never become God's but we will be brought into the beauty of God. That's what you did for us. We want to see as many people brought into the beauty of God as we can, not into a religion, not into a new set of rules, not into a new set of moral behavioral modification, but into the glory and the beauty and the love and the acceptance of our God. That's what we want to live for, God. So we worship you. Praise to you.